Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda, Talk 2 by Asha Praver, February 21, 2012. Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Ramani, I commend you for... I commend you for your courage coming back from India so soon and then actually committing yourself to being awake here. I just hide out for a couple of days. I don't go anywhere. (laughs) I I see. So you're just waking up. All right. Um, I started reading this book again from the beginning. I've read it a couple of times, but not yet in this form. Um, It's a really great book. If you haven't bought your copy, you really ought to. Swamiji was sitting in uh, his house in Pune reading the Indian edition. This is a very good book, he said. I'm so pleased with this. <laughs> After he puts them out, they're like children. But Okay, uh, my inspiration for teaching this book was not so much that we were going to start at the beginning, although we may end up going back to the beginning. But the part that captured me, as I said last week, was the part that Swamiji himself kept pulling out. Yogananda's salient characteristics. And the reason, I mean, I understood why he was doing that, why he wrote that, and why he kept reading it to us. Um, Because, of course, those are our characteristics. Those are what we aspire to. The, The master incarnates to manifest perfectly who and what it is that we're trying to become. And the master incarnates also because he opens a window to that perfect vibration. And by attuning ourselves with him, it's easier for us to get to where we're trying to go. So when I was um, sitting here just a few minutes ago, and what I've been doing for some time now is really trying to feel what each of these qualities is like in him, what it's like in our lives, and then how can we live more like that. And nobody um, is giving you any final exams here, but what I would encourage you to do is we'll talk about a few of these qualities tonight, is really meditate on them during this week. I mean, meditate on um, Master's capacity to express this and meditate on receiving in yourself that same ability and then let that be kind of an observation point for the week. I had a moment, and it was just one of those flashes of um, intuitive understanding that fortunately comes to us, often unbidden. Uh, Once when I was actually on my way upstairs um, at the apartment we lived in before. I say all that because it happened at a certain place in a certain moment. And the thought crossed my mind, what would it feel like to be absolutely afraid of nothing? I was just thinking of the Master's consciousness. And just for a moment, I just tried to um, put myself into what it would be like to be absolutely afraid of nothing. And just for, you know, a, a, a moment in time, I felt all this tension just leaving me. Not, it's not like I walk around in fear all the time, but subconsciously we carry many, many fears. And I was, I was thinking not just to be calm, but to actually be afraid of nothing that there's nothing that could come up that would frighten you. Think of the story of, uh, in the autobiography of a yogi of the uh, policeman mistakenly following a sadhu thinking he was a murderer and slicing his arm off. 
trying to, you know, in, in thinking he was trying to get away, the sadhu, without flinching, just picked it up and stuck it back on and healed it and then turned to the policeman and said, I'm not the criminal that you're seeking. But all, there's many aspects of that, but the part that, that always strikes me the most is the fact that he lived in such a state of complete detachment and fearlessness that just the, the severing of a limb did not cause a ripple in his emotional or mental sky. And so it gives us a clue that we're, we're working with energies that is outside the common energy. And so I wanted to you know, then just start in. We'll start in just one at a time. This is chapter 17 of this book. It may be interesting to learn about some of the salient characteristics I observed in Paramhansa Yogananda during the years I lived with him. I will then number them here for convenience. There are 32, and this is number one. The outstanding trait I observed was his complete absence of ego. When I looked into his eyes, it was like looking into infinity. One time, Devi Mukherjee, a disciple from Calcutta, said something to Master about his humility. The guru replied, How can there be humility when there is no consciousness of ego. A perfect example of his freedom from ego is a story I'll tell in the next chapter about a certain judge. My point here is that the master could accept any insult and never be affected by it. As you'll see, he accepted that judge's withering contempt with utter goodwill. I never saw him affected to even the slightest degree by anything that anyone ever said about him. It's really amazing to contemplate. So let's just sort of work with a few of the concepts there. Just the first fact that is he, he had a complete absence of ego. Um, ego is a word that I've just found increasingly fascinating in my last few years of, on the spiritual path. I never liked it or used it that much earlier on because... I was always confused by um, people's dismissal of so much as, oh, well, that's just ego, and that's just ego on that person, and don't be so egotistical. And I, I could never follow the meaning very clearly because um, a certain kind of dynamism is also fundamental to the spiritual path. And a certain quality on the spiritual path is the ability to move forward with a, a great deal of focused personal energy. And too often when people um, sort of dismiss things as ego, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to lower people's energy level to something they're more comfortable with. Or lower people's willpower to something that doesn't make as many waves. So we have to understand that of course, Paramahansa Yogananda was just powerful beyond anything we can even imagine. Um, Swamiji has talked to us at different times just about the sheer force of his personality and the force of his nature and the, and the um, complete command he held over all the disciples and everything that happened at Mount Washington, even just on the level of sheer accomplishments. And think of him going back and forth across the country, um, lecturing into, to thousands of people. And you, you read in other places and also in this book, you know, 
keeping up huge correspondence and counseling and initiating and just all the time reaching out. So there was, and reaching out with his own nature. He wasn't shy about anything. And he advertised himself and he allowed people to promote him and he did miraculous things in front of people. I mean, tremendous amount of uh, force. So we can't think that his complete absence of ego resulted in any way in a diminution of his magnetism. So even in ourselves, we have to realize that we can't overcome our egos by suppressing our nature or by trying to make ourselves so invisible that we'll never really make a mistake in in any way at all. Because that is simply not the example that the Master set for us. What they set for us, and I'll come back to the word fearlessness, is this complete willingness, in fact just the opposite, to just do whatever is needed from them without any concern. And there's a story that's told, I don't know if it's in this book or exactly where it is, I can't remember now because it all blends together, maybe it's in the path, where Master was wearing his orange robe on a city street and some young girls were making fun of him. And they were sort of snickering, I guess they thought he didn't speak English or something. And then he turned to them and he said, I'm a, I'm a foreigner and a guest in your country. He said, I would like to think if you came to mind that people would treat you with more courtesy than you're treating me. What I'm wearing is perfectly normal where I come from. I mean, it's a small thing, but he just wasn't going to allow himself to be spoken to that way. Remember the story of him sitting on the train with the actor in front of him who had such an unpleasant face? Why do you have such an unpleasant face? None of your business. Oh, it's very much my business. I have to look at you. (laughs) You know, it's a very... So what you're dealing with is not a person who was in any way a shrinking violet. I mean, anything but. So, and yet, Swamiji talked about the fact that he managed, and this is, this is the fascinating part of it that we have to really meditate on to understand. He managed to be one of the most outstanding, forceful personalities who will in time have put the imprint of his incarnation on an entire age. And yet, as Swamiji said, there was no ego in him, a complete absence of ego. So what we're talking about is something very different than um, the the small-minded way that people think about this thing. Um, What we're really trying to do when we're trying to overcome the ego, and it's, it's a very interesting reality to contemplate, and Master says this also, that we tend to think of the most important and the most influential as the biggest wave. Whoever has the biggest wave and is standing out the most, whatever sports star, political leader, or movie star, and you know, who just sort of has separated themselves from the herd and is making the most noise, we tend to think of that person as the really important person. And Master talked about it just the opposite, that the greater you are, the closer you live to the ocean. You see how different it is? And in, in a passing sense, people can be important for a period of time, but it's those um, individuals, as I talked about last week a lot, that almost no one who is a contemporary of Jesus would ever have imagined the, the magnitude of the impact that his life had because it didn't look like what people thought of as power and importance. He was just crucified like a common criminal. That was that. And then a few people said he resurrected, but it was just kind of a rumor. 
You know, it wasn't like he suddenly walked back into the city hall or where he'd been crucified and spoke to those very people or anything like that. He appeared to his disciples. Then they told others. I mean, I, I went through that a lot last week. So this absence of ego has to be a, a capacity, how would I say it, to live your full destiny. Because our full destiny is really to be an, uh, the full ocean. I mean, all of us need to be moving around in this world, and eventually we will be. When I read the Festival of Light every week, um, here then, you know, the, the great masters, here then is the sacrifice of the great masters for the world from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. Now, what he's actually saying there is that we all have to go through all four stages. So we're not finished until we have reached the state, exactly the same state of self-realization that every master has. So um, what we're really trying to work with is that the infinity of divine consciousness is accessible to us. All the creativity, all the courage, all the world-changing power, all the energy, um, everything that you can think of, all the love, all the bliss that is available in creation will eventually be ours. And it's the, it's the commitment to a lesser reality. That's what ego actually is. It's the commitment to a lesser reality. Oh, look what I've done. Look what this little incarnation has accomplished. Look how those people like me. Look at, you know, just look at what's going on with my little wave instead of being able to stand back and realize that whatever the wave does is just the result of the ocean's power. And living in the ocean, then why would I ever define myself by the wave? So Swamiji, when he talked about looking in Master's eyes, because he was looking at this extraordinarily powerful individual but he could see that that individual identified only with the ocean that animated him. And that it wasn't that he wasn't present, because he was, and wasn't doing all those things, because he was. You know, he, he held his work very powerfully and had very strong ideas, as Swami expresses to us, of exactly what he was going to do and how he was going to do it and when he was going to do it and who would take care of it and how he would express himself you know, he was not um, lax or lackadaisical about any part of it. But when Swami looked into his eyes, Master lived from the ocean, and living from the ocean, the wave was just the natural expression of it. And just feeling that complete reversal, we tend to sort of live in the wave and then peer a little at the ocean. You know, our primary sense of identification is in our preoccupation and our thinking is with all the small things that happened to us. When I was 18, probably just 19, when I first, no, it was 18, when Swami, uh, when my friend gave me the book by Swami Vivekananda, and it had four statements in there, three statements that I've mentioned to you all before that just completely captured me. One was what you do today. What happens today is the result of what you did yesterday. Love casts out fear, which I found out later was from the Bible, but I didn't know that. 
And then the third one was, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. At the age of 18, my thought was, what else is there to think about? It was just like, and I wasn't selfish in the sense of um, I didn't draw all energy to myself. You know, I, I lived in a generous, spirited way just because it was my nature to do so. But I constantly thought about myself. Just, I was constantly evaluating my own position. Not even with an ambitious sense, but just always asking myself, how do I feel? What do I want? Even years later when I got to Ananda, I remember realizing that I realized it because I, I was with Seva a great deal of the time, and Seva was very impersonal and very um, disciplined in her activities, and I was extremely um, self-concerned and um, unpredictable in my behavior. And I realized that I was in the habit, and the only way I can think of it, is that I was always calculating my own advantage. And I don't mean that even in a selfish way. I was just always looking for what would be more fun. I was always thinking about what I wanted to do. You know, I will do this, but if that seems like a more interesting thing, then I'll do that instead. And once I showed up for work, having set out in the morning to get there at 8.30, and I arrived at 4 in the afternoon, and Seva just looked at me and said, good morning, like that. That's all she had to say. It was enough. But I had, I had intended to come, but one thing happened, and I had to deal with that, and another thing happened, I had to do with this, and another I had to do with that. Because I was always just spinning in my own world of, of uh, preference. Oh, that's the word, likes and dislikes. When I said calculating my own advantage, it was just likes and dislikes. This is more enjoyable. This is I prefer. I'm really not interested in that. I'll just do this. I wasn't a total flake, but I was pretty scattered for many, many years of my life because of that habit. Because I was always thinking about my own position in relation to everything I did. And as I said, it was just a total shock to me not even to think like that. I remember this back to being 18. I remember literally talking out loud about the things that I saw outside of myself just to get my mind off of myself. Because the habit of self-concern was so deep that I just didn't even know what else to think about. I mean, part of it was just youth and inexperience, but it was also just an orientation. I was more interesting than anything else around me, I guess. <laughs> to me, I was at least. Do you know what I mean? But think about the fact of just simply not, not being tied to that kind of preoccupation. Think about whenever you've had moments of utter self-forgetfulness, whether they be in uh, self-sacrificing uh, self love, in creative work, in deep meditation, um, in service to someone else, uh, whatever it might be, the times when the flow of what was happening completely took away the, the concept of I'm doing it or what do I think about this. I know a lot of times people's work, creative work is completely interrupted and I know mine was for many years because I was always thinking about what I was going to get from the creative work. You know, many, many people are trying to write a novel and they're thinking about how famous they're going to be once the novel is done. You know, they're working on uh, some business project, but what they're really thinking about is how much money they're going to have when the project is really done. Or how impressed other people are going to be by how skillfully I do this. I'm just amazed by how everything goes wrong whenever ego enters the picture. 
even when you let just a little bit of pride enter the picture about what you think you've done well. And then just the next thing that will happen for sure is that it will just bomb, just bomb something terrible. Um, as Swamiji once said to me, whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> that was a, in the late 1970s. I put on this whole project, and I really did it just to, because I was trying to prove myself against someone else. And uh, it just was a total, complete catastrophe. And uh, that's when it said afterwards, whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. I just was so concerned about my own role in it that I just made some really fundamental misjudgments in planning it. And so that the whole concept was off. It was fundraising and it just lost tons of money. The whole concept was off because way back over here, instead of thinking about the ocean, I was so concentrated on the wave. Now, in thousands of ways, we allow this persistent thought that I have to protect something and that I I really exist and it has to be protected. He adds in here, which is so interesting. Um, I never saw him affected, and he says, to even the slightest degree by anything that anyone ever said about him. Now, just even that to contemplate is really something. Think how many times, just in little interactions with people, a tone of voice, a wrong word, just causes us to flinch a little bit or to answer a little bit more strongly than we mean to. Where does that come from? I find it just so interesting because I fall into it like everyone else and I think afterwards, where did that come from? You know, what part of my subconscious made me think in that moment that I needed to act in some way to strengthen my position? You know, or somebody does something that hurts your feelings. I was talking to a friend of mine and, you know, someone else had been quite rude to her and My response was, well, what difference does it make? You know, she was just having a bad day and she took it out on you. And then my friend said back to me, well, I do get my feelings hurt. And she does get her feelings hurt. And I thought to myself, what does that mean to get your feelings hurt? You know, somebody is, and and it happens to all of us. Oh, well, that really hurt my feelings. Swami Kriyananda has a very interesting way of relating to things. It, he observes that it happens but then he doesn't participate in it. He doesn't, I mean, he, he doesn't then commit his energy afterwards. Oh, you know, that was a moment in which that wasn't a sensitive remark that I gave, or I'm speaking of him, it's more often when people say unkind things to him. You know, somebody will say something unkind, and you may know, well, this is a moment in which I could get my feelings hurt. But why would I want to do that? You know, where will that take me? And the, what we have to appreciate, and this is what I, why I was so interested in this chapter, is we have to go the full distance. You know, it's, it's, we're always thinking that we can just go halfway and that'll be good enough. And it will be good enough if you think it's good enough. But sooner or later, you're going to have to go the full distance. There's no part of the ego self that we can hold in reserve and just enjoy for now. We may say, okay, I'm just going to hold this in reserve and enjoy it for now. But sooner or later, we have to go the full distance. When 
he says in there that Master said, how can there be humility when there's no sense of self? And so what he's really talking about is he has simply, the, the Yogananda event happens, but the consciousness that animates that body is just in the ocean, and the ocean makes the wave. And the ocean never transfers its consciousness to the wave. That's among the reasons why he can be so exuberantly forceful in his huge personality, Master's gigantic self coming forward, because he's, he's he's never identified by that wave. So no part of him has to inhibit its expression and wait and wonder and second guess and all the things that we do that cause us. I remember at a certain point I realized that I was actually kinder, more considerate, and more generous to almost everyone in my life uh, except Swami Kriyananda. Because I was so concerned about doing the wrong thing with him that even sometimes even common courtesies or little remembrances or sweet gestures I would refrain from out of self-concern. Isn't that interesting? And then I finally realized I don't treat him as well as I treat most of my friends, you know? And I just started um, concentrating more on the flow of energy rather than the source of the energy and what might happen to me. Um, I've seen, I have certain friends who are, um, I'll, use an, I'll mention her by name, uh, many of you know Krishna, uh, Krishna uh, Christy Dewey. She lived here for a long time and she had a great deal of intuition, has a great deal of intuition, and she just tended to know when something was needed. And I always admired a certain egoless selflessness about her. It just sort of when you need it, she would show up, she just would have made dinner for you. And she'll just knock on the door and she'll just have made dinner. Oh, here's dinner, I felt like you needed dinner. Or she'll come over and she'll say, you know, I, maybe you need a little background. And she would just always, she'd say, you're, you're stiff right here, you know, almost without touching you. She'd just walk over and say, that's where it hurts. And she'd come in just at the moment when you were, you know, just feeling the pain in your back. And oh, you should just come over and suddenly be washing your dishes. I felt like you were a little behind today. And I was, have always been impressed by her intuition, but I have also been impressed by the freedom with which she would just give. You know, it wouldn't cross her mind um, to worry about her own position in it. She would just feel this impulse to give, and then she would just give it. Just recently, I was up at Nancy Mayer's, and we were cooking a fundraising dinner. And, you know, the, the, the crew has to eat because we're there all day. And we were just sort of there kind of late morning, and all of a sudden, she shows up with lunch. And, I mean, you know, bringing food to Nancy Mayer's is coals to Newcastle, like, way beyond... But she just said, I just thought you all needed lunch. And, and uh, Netri is her name now. She just said, yeah, I was just thinking about it. I realized we hadn't made any plans. But you know, just right in that moment. But you, you behave like that when you're in connected with the whole. Now, I'm using her, and I don't, she's not here, so I'm not embarrassing her. Other people will hear this. But um, uh, let, let me just, just a second, I lost. Oh. It's a very small example. We're talking about a God-realized master. These are master salient characteristics. But at the same time, to get from where we are to where he is, we have to move through the ground that stands between us. 
And I was trying to talk about this on Sunday, and I don't feel that I hit it as on, the, on point as I meant to, but greatness is created by many small gestures. And in this particular case, ego transcendence is created by many, 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 many small victories. Um, at the stage of life that I am, I, I so want to express that thought to people, just per- persevere. Just persevere today, you know, tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow in the middle of the morning, tomorrow at noon, tomorrow right after noon. Just like, just think exactly as Master said. Just make it a minute-by-minute conversation and effort. And understand, and I want to make this last point before we go on to the next one. Self-abnegation is not the same as humility. You know, just saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm not really worthwhile, I really can't do that, oh, I'm not the one, oh, don't ask me. You know, that sometimes that just draws more and more energy to you. And then everybody has to say, yes, you can, oh, we sh- you should do it, oh, you really... You know, a lot of times, all of that putting yourself down It's just a way of getting everybody to rush over and talk to you. And instead of making you less obtrusive, you become far more obtrusive because you're always making a big noise about your worthlessness. You know, what we really want to be and what true humility is, as Master defined it, is simply honest. Yeah, I could take that on. I can do that. No, I really don't think I can handle that one. Just whatever it is. You don't have to be exaggerated on either side. You want to identify with the ocean and then see where this wave is particularly trying to go without making such a big deal about it. Just one way or another. Swami is, well, I, sometimes I, I take my faults too seriously. He said, when you throw dust on your head, he said, you're concentrating on dust and your own head. <laughs> he said, and neither of those really takes you where you want to go. How can there be humility when there is no consciousness of self. I mean, that's why hard work and service is also really good for us, because for many of us, in addition to meditation, I don't want to, I'll, I'll go back to meditation, but, but for a lot of us, to just do creative work, or do work creatively, all work can be made creative if you try. Um, but the point is to have an outward focus for your flow of energy, and a way to constantly be giving your energy away. Because a lot of times, well, they have that expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop. I remember actually once a woman uh, in the early years of Ananda Swamiji had her just working day and night and seven days a week. And someone said, don't you think she should have a day off? And Swami very sternly said, I know what's best for her. Just like that. But the answer was, whenever she had a day off, she just became self-concerned. It simply did not serve her to have time alone. So he kept her constantly busy. Because as long as she was constantly busy, it, it avoided the what about me question. Because if you don't ask what about me, you're usually just fine. Now I'm talking about a basic level of psychological health here, which is required. You cannot transcend the ego if your ego is not already... If you're not if you're not honestly and fully integrated into your egoic personality, you can't give away what you don't own. I, I just sort of have to say that, but I don't want to spend a lot of time there. So what we're really trying to do is just self-forgetfulness. When I was first at Ananda Village and I started working in the kitchen, 
there. I ended up, after the first couple of months, I ended up in charge of the kitchen, which was, you know, the first job I had that I wasn't competent to have. But I had lots of energy and I had good spirit, and I became competent. But I had to work very, very hard. I cooked three meals a day, six days a week, for about 30 people. I had one woman helping me who was not the highest energy or the most competent person in the world. And uh, on the seventh day, I would go to town and buy the supplies. And it was my first experience of doing something that I actually wanted to do. I'd been working because I dropped out of school, you know, when I was 19. So I'd had jobs. I'd supported myself for four or five years. But every job I had was just a paycheck. And so I simply worked to get money and I never put myself into the work that I was doing. I didn't work badly, but I just didn't care. I had this job up at a very fine law firm up there. I was working as a secretary. I I made a good impression. And so I had this job and uh, I was fired from that job. On on the the end of my 90-day probation, she fired me. I thought she was going to give me a raise. Instead, she fired me. (laughs) And it it was a long time before I understood. She fired me because I didn't give a damn, and she could tell. (laughs) And uh, 10 years later, when I was really doing something I loved, and I was supervising other people, and I realized that some of the people working for me, even at Ananda, didn't give a damn, I wrote her a letter the personnel lady. And I said, thank you very much. I had no idea what you, why you did that at the time, but now I fully understand. But when I got to Ananda and was working in the kitchen, it was the first time I was doing something that I wanted to do with my whole heart, just my whole heart and soul. And so I always was thinking about it. I mean, in much of my life I was doing it. Cooking is just endless. You just cook one meal, you clean up, you cook the next, you know, three meals a day. You can just see it never, ever stopped. And when I wasn't cooking, I was thinking about what I was going to cook or buying the food so I could cook it again. And it was sort of a joke because I remember somebody came up to me during that period of time and said, how are you? And I actually said, who, me? Just like that. Because for the first time in my life also, my attention was outside of myself. It had moved away from me. And I, I mean, I was just, I loved doing it. I absolutely loved it. I never thought of it as difficult. It was just the right size position to be in and to be able to do something. And I jokingly just said, I hope that, you know, I hope that God is in all these meals because that's all I'm thinking about. But even at the time, I knew it was the beginning of something very important for me because I'd never been happier. You know, the story of Gyanamata serving master and somebody said to her, you know, why are you always running around doing his bidding? She said, well, I'm a little old to change. And she said, besides that, she said, I've never been happier. So the point is very simple. The more self-concern enters the picture, however we make that self-concern, what's going to happen to me when I get old? What about my health? You know, why doesn't, don't people treat me better? Why don't I get the respect I deserve? Whatever it might be, whatever it might be, the degree to which we have ego and self-concern to that extent, exactly, we do not have happiness. So sooner or later, our desire for happiness, bliss, will push us to the nth degree. You know, when I looked into Master's eyes, Swamiji said, there was no trace of ego. How can there be, how can there be humility, even, Master said, when there's no sense of self? 
Now, meditation, and I said I wanted to come back to that, obviously. What we're doing when we're meditating is we're just simply transferring our attention from the medulla, which is the ego self. I mean, here's the ego right here. It's in the medulla. This is where we live because we are ego-identified. And it's so interesting to contemplate meditation just in terms of the ego. Because these two, the medulla and the spiritual eye, these are the opposite sides of the same chakra. And this is where the self lives. And it either lives in that chakra at the medulla, with this this sense of this is where the physical body is manifested from. I mean, these are such interesting meditations. You know, when you're just meditating to just bring in these images, or when you're out walking or just praying and reflecting about things, the sperm and the ovum come together. Swamiji was talking about children. He was talking about education for life. And he he, he made the comment about um, treating children in a certain way. And he just said, made this obvious statement, but it, it struck me. He said, children are f- as fully, you know, a little small child is as fully intelligent as any adult. I mean, the intelligence is completely intact. They just, intact, they just lack experience and the capacity to communicate or sometimes to express it. But he was basically saying, don't think you can fool children. And, you know, they're very observant. He was talking about blustering parents or teachers who try to pretend that they know everything. The children know right away that they don't because they're not stupid. They're just young. So um, let me think where I was going with that. Um, Oh, the sperm and the ovum. So I was thinking about that flash of light in the astral world. And of course, when you're in the astral world, you're not a baby. When you're in the astral world, you're just the jiva. You're your individual self getting ready to start on your next karmic journey. And so the sperm and the ovum come together, Master says. There's a flash of light in the astral world. And if, if, that's, if it's your time and it's the right place for you, then your life force enters into where those, those, two have, those two cells have joined together. And the way Swamiji put it is, you don't create a child, you create a vehicle for a soul to be able to express its life. I mean, that's what, the, that's what the mother and the father, that's what the mother creates in her womb. She creates a little vessel that the jiva can enter, and then the jiva can use that vessel to have a life experience. And that was when he was talking about, too, about the full intelligence and destiny of that being is right there when that, that light force comes. But in that moment, you know, that you, you begin to identify with what's ever started there. And it's, it's at the medulla that that's where that begins. That's where our life force begins, is right at, at the medulla. There has to be identification with that body sufficiently to make it. So the jiva has now identified, entered the womb, and it begins to make the body. It begins to build its vehicle. You know, you're building your little go-kart. You're just building the whole thing up with your energy there just to make it happen. And you sort of have to live through that whole process starting at the medulla. But the question is, do we stay there? Do we stay there looking at life from this identification with the physical body? Or do we, by a conscious act of will and meditation and dedication to God, shift that focus to the spiritual eye? Because when you live from here, you still have 
your individuality, you're still a jiva, you're still animating your body, but your whole perspective on it has just shifted just that far. It's, and that's what we're doing with our kriyas, you know, you're bringing the energy up, you're bringing the energy through the medulla, and you're bringing it to the spiritual eye. You know, you're, you're consciously, constantly pulling your attention away from ego identity to identity with the infinite spirit, the Christ consciousness. And when you die, um, Master said, most people sink backwards in consciousness when they die. You're, you're, you die from the extremities and the energy goes back up the spine. It, it follows the course backwards. You know, it started at the medulla and it extends out to make the body and then it, it goes backwards and you usually, if you watch, if someone dies in such a way that you can watch it, you'll watch the breath get more and more shallow and finally it comes to here. And most people, Master said, just sink backwards at that point. They fall back into the medulla and then the breath stops and they leave the body. But the yogi, if he's consciously passing, he's constantly pulling that force into the spiritual eye. Instead of allowing it to sink backward, he's pulling it forward. When uh, Paula died, and uh, and she was just, you know, she more or less announced that this was it. And everybody wake up and come and help me. 30 people in the room. And uh, she was just sort of there. And then she said, this is hard. You have to help me. That was her words. This is hard. You have to help me. And we all started chanting Om for her. And just sort of helping her. And she didn't explain it. I mean, this was, this was you know, 10 minutes before she left her body. Maybe a little longer. But I think what she said was hard when she was trying to pull her consciousness from the medulla. And everything, like I was talking last week, everything about our identification with this body is pulling on us and we're trying to go in this direction. Every, every time you meditate, it's a death experience because we're trying to escape from the ego and become fully concentrated on the spiritual eye. And what happens to us? All of a sudden we're thinking about what we're going to do tomorrow, what we're going to cook for lunch, what happened yesterday, some childhood events, some fury we have with some person, some hope for the future. And you know, we, we're, we're moving to the spiritual eye. We, we let our energy and our willpower down just a little bit and we sink backward. Just It's a mini death every time. So of course, meditation and especially Kriya, because it's the vrittis and the chakras, um, lower than the medulla that is also pulling the consciousness down. But the process of Kriya, where you bring that energy through the chakras every time and you pull it through the medulla to the spiritual eye, just over and over and over again, it's, it's this um, unrelenting determination um, to eliminate from our consciousness um, this, this um, false reality that inevitably bears fruit. It's the most remarkable thing. You really, I I would speak from my own experience, you really think you're getting nowhere. And then all of a sudden you realize that far from getting nowhere that you've transformed yourself. And you never actually remember when it happened. It's partly because, as my brother put it once, it was so well put, he said, you could be sitting next to an ice cube, but after it melts, it's just gone. <laughs> and, and I've always thought of that image. It's sort of like the vrittis in your chakras. 
they're there, and but when they're gone, they're just gone. And so even the vibration of ever having had them has left you. So you don't really feel like you've changed because you don't really have a point of reference. It's just you'll sort of vaguely remember that you used to feel different than you are or something will happen and you'll react in a way that's totally unexpected. But that happens in one way only. This is my goal and my goal is absolute. And when I fall from it, I recognize that I've fallen from it. I don't say it's okay. I say it's okay in the sense of, ah, it's happened, what can I do? Otherwise you're only thinking about dust in your own head. Uh, but uh, you don't quit. That's it. Did you want to say something, Ramani? Why don't you just look? Okay. I think it relates. Um, uh-huh. So uh, when I was in uh, Pune, I had a small. I have a small place to stay, uh-huh. which is near Swami's house. And so one morning I got up a little late for meditation and I was getting ready to do my energizations before I went and I looked out the window and I saw over on the patio at Swami's house, not thinking too clearly in the morning, uh, a figure with a white hair and a blue outfit and also um, Narayani in yeah. yellow. And um, then I realized... and. and the person with white hair was leaning against the house, and then I realized it was Swami doing his energizations with Narayani's help uh-huh. and the house's help. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll close the window and not, I'll give them privacy, you know. So I uh-huh. did my energizations, but then I looked out and they were still there, and I thought, I have to walk by them right. on my way. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do that, but I just won't, I'll give them their space. I won't look, you know. So I'm walking by. And as I got just right below them, Swami goes, Good morning, Ramani! <laughs> and he has this huge grin, and he's just full of joy. And I thought, I mean, talk about projecting your own, you know, he, it, the joy that you talk about, that there was nothing there. He was thrilled. <laughs> There's not another person on the planet that you wouldn't have just walked by and said good morning to. Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, it's, you have to really stop and think about that. You would have just said good morning, and then you would have wondered, you know, do I stay in chat or do I not? But you would have just done it in the most spontaneous, natural way. So it's it's a very it's paradoxical. I mean, it's a good example because he um, tends to highlight things, but it's a good example of how often we allow self-concern to interrupt the flow of of the real flow of positive energy. And and that is one of my wonderful moments yeah. that luckily happens at Pune every so often because um, he's more more available. Well, he lives, and, you know, 20 feet from your couture, yeah, <laughs> I know. And his, the eyes, I mean, the joy was, it just cut in and I knew exactly what had just happened. Right. It just cut right. whatever thing I was holding between yeah. me and the joy. You know, Swamiji, speaking of eyes, I think Swamiji put this also in an interesting way. Whenever I looked into his eyes, he says, and one of the um, strong uh, advices for being in tune as a disciple is to look at the photograph and look into the eyes. So I was looking at the eyes in the context of this, just thinking, you know, what does complete egolessness look like? 
of course, we're looking at a photograph, but through the photograph we can find the consciousness too. What does it look like? What do eyes look like that have no self-concern in them? And it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's interesting, you know, not in a, a negative way, but, you know, when you see people, and you just not, instead of just looking at them, you know, try to look into them, try to feel what are they projecting, what kind of consciousness do they have, and, and give also in the same way. But just try to understand it, it, you have to be busy all the time. You know, who is this person that I'm dealing with? What, the way to think about, of it selflessly is just, what do they need from me? You know, what could, what could I give this person that would be uh, in tune with them and of benefit to them? And that way, um, I, I mean, you've heard me tell before that Swamiji doesn't know what color people's eyes are. Because as he put it, he says, I never look at their eyes, I look through them, through their physical eyes. So I don't notice what color they are because it's the color of their eyes is not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the consciousness that's coming through those eyes. And uh, it's, that's just a different way of thinking. It's all the different ways because it's not only just a question of overcoming our ego, it's a question of not seeing everybody else in that light either. But the more you feel yourself, just a wave on the ocean, an ocean, an ocean manifesting a wave, the more other people will also look like that to you and the, all the little particularities of their nature will also fade away, which of course creates much more harmony and ease too. Did you have a question? No, you were just taking it back. Okay, anything else about this one before? Because we'll take a break and then go on from here. I'm, I, think I, un- I think I understand what you're saying about going between the medulla and the ego and the spiritual line, right. spirit. Um, I'm just wondering that comment that Swami makes of living in your spine mm-hmm. and how that goes along with, you know, also concentrating in the spiritual line. Well, Master told Swamiji to keep his attention always at the spiritual line and to come down as you need to, you know, to eat and talk a little bit, but then just bring your attention right back. So this is the spine. I mean, the spiritual eye is the spine. To live in your spine means to withdraw from the peripheral identification and to live in the inner flow of energy. And if you're going to live in the inner flow of energy, you might as well live at the, the master seat of that inner flow of energy, which is the spiritual eye. Because, see, we tend to think that, oh, I'm so happy because, look, I bought this new thing, and isn't it pretty, and it feels so nice on me, and... Um, what we're really having, we're having an experience of an upward flow of energy. But if we're living at the edge of ourselves, we're having an experience of this thing, and we don't necessarily notice that what we're having an experience of is an upward flow of energy. But if you live more at the spine, somebody gives you a beautiful thing, and you, you say, oh, isn't it a beautiful thing? It's so lovely, and it looks so nice on me. But your actual inner, your experience is that you're just feeling a flow of energy in the spine. And even though you're relating to this, you're, you're, you know that it's not the external thing that's giving you the experience. You're just having the experience. So when he says live more in the spine, that's what he's talking about. Live more at the source of where things are actually happening. Um, I, I went to a bank once. I can't remember what the context was, but I was dealing with this bank officer I know everybody has a spine because everybody has to have a spine and everybody has to have chakras. But otherwise, I would have said that this woman didn't have any. (laughs) 
I have never in my life been with anyone who was so externalized in her consciousness. It was really like she had no inner reality. She, just everything about her, I can't really put it into words. She was restless, of course, but it was even more than that. It was like the only reality to her was the external things that were happening. And of course, we have to be responsible for the external things that are happening, but when we live more in the spine, we're always living from the root, from the trunk of the tree. We're reaching out from the trunk of the tree to relate to what's going on on the edge instead of just living in what's going out on the, on the edge. Now, once we're in our spine, I mean, this is a, an important um, conversation whenever we talk about inner guidance, is that um, it's progressive. First, you just live in what everybody else says is true, and your, you know, your your bathroom is filled with cosmetics that you bought from the ads, and your closet is full of clothes that you just are all, you know, from the latest fashions, and all just everything is about what everybody's telling you. And the first thing you have to do is you have to come into some sense of making your own decisions and evaluating things and making your own choices, or you're living a life in reaction to how you were raised. You know, my father was an alcoholic and therefore I behaved this way and, you know, just always in reaction to things. So the first thing you have to do is you have to gather your own reality. When I was talking about you have to own your own ego, this is what I mean. You have to, you have to actually become an egoic self and not just be this broken result of all these other external influences. Many people come to Ananda um, thinking that they can escape uh, the painful process of facing all the things that have been done to them that have fractured their inner self because we talk about transcending that and they think they can transcend it without ever mending it. But you ha it's, everything is directional and if, you're, if your inner self is owned by external events the first thing you have to do is you have to gather your egoic self and, and mend that fractured ego and then begin to listen to what it is that you yourself are speaking from inside. But the first stages are not super conscious. They're just my own voice, you know, and I've always wanted to have a horse. I've always wanted to live by the beach. You know, I can too be a lawyer you know, just all kinds of things that in and of themselves don't have a lot of divinity to them, but they're directional because they are reclaiming a fractured ego and giving that ego the strength to stand up on its own. Um, but that's not yet living in the spine. That's just quite not living on the periphery. And then we start moving on into a much deeper level where instead of just asking, what do I want? We ask, what is God asking of me? What does my divine self want? What will really lift my consciousness? So merely because we're guided from inside does not mean we're guided super consciously from inside. And we have to not only tell what I want, we have to tell which I wants it. And I've, I sometimes object to psychic readers because sometimes they'll just read what you really want. <laughs> they don't necessarily read what is right for you, spiritually speaking. They just read what you're emanating and articulate it back to you. Yes, that's just how I felt. 
You know, I will too become a millionaire. Yes, that's right. It's what I feel I'm being guided to do. Well, that's what you want to do. But when you get to the spine, you're, you're moving out of all the forms of things. And you're trying to live much more just by the energy. I mean, you're living much more in the energy. And the energy, when you're in the spine, I come back to Kriya all the time, the energy when you're in the spine is just the up and downward flow of energy. It's just the breath. And so whatever's happening around you, I was projecting myself into uh, just into my fears, you know, imprisonment and that sort of thing. That's my biggest fears. I won't say biggest, but that's a fear that I carry around a lot. You know, what would I do in the middle tier of the upper bunk, you know, of the Ravensbrück concentration camp, you know, what would I do, you know, when I lay down there to go to sleep, what would I do? And then you, but you, you can always come back to, I could breathe. I could go into the inner spine. Because if I'm living in the spine, I'm just living in the spine. I'm not living in any of this. I'm just living in whether, in where the energy is flowing. And most of us, most people, the energy flows inwardly according to what's happening outwardly. But the inner energy is greater than the outer energy and the inner energy is, can be under your conscious control. And that's what he's talking about when you live in the spine. You're just living in that flow of energy and oh, this looks like it's making my energy sink. Why should it? I'll just do my Kriya breath. I'll just do my prayer. But of course, everything about all of that is bringing it to a focus at the spiritual eye because at the medulla or even at the heart, you're too subject to likes and dislikes. So you want it here. And But once you're here, then you're automatically living in the spine because all the chakras are run from the spiritual eye. Does that make sense? And so that's where, you know, that's what Master had no consciousness of self. He was just an inner flow of energy. And so that inner flow of energy is established in one body and therefore that body does certain things, but he's just experiencing it as a flow of energy. And that's why we have such an emphasis on energy. And you were mentioning energization. You know, just everything comes together. You do the energization exercises, you begin to know yourself as just a flow of energy. And if you're just a flow of energy, that's how you begin to break down all those limitations that the ego imposes on you. All of our techniques are extremely interesting. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? Well, actually, it's not a question, but I just want to confirm that I'm understanding what you're saying. <clears throat> so, how can I put it? Uh, like you were saying earlier, sometimes you think I, well, it has happened to me. I think I had it. Nobody's, I don't have any more buttons that people can push, but suddenly it's like. Oh, yeah, that's a dangerous thought, Edwin. <laughs> That's like that's like, it's like that's like taking a red thing and shaking it in front of the bull. <laughs> but like you were saying, it's like subconsciously just comes up. Uh-huh. So what we need to do just keep working at at it, doing through kriya. You know, um, someone gave me a story for my miracle book, which uh, the book about miracles, which I can't use uh, in this book. It was a story about Swamiji. It's a great story. I'll use it when I write about Swamiji again. Something really terrible happened to this poor woman. And uh, uh, 
Swami's response to her was, did you think the test would get easier? You know, just like, what could you have been thinking? And so, it never stops. It never ends until we're free. So, I, I, don't, I don't try to think about whether I've, I've learned something or not. I mean, I mean, it's nice to know that you have learned something. That's good. But don't ever think... <laughs> Just don't bother. It's just not worth it. Because he says a lot of things implied in that. Because, you know, it's, it's fine to know that you can handle something. It's a balancing point. You, have, you want to have self-confidence. You don't want to be afraid. But we're so far from being free. I was talking to Swamiji about something, and, you know, some psychic reader had said that so-and-so would achieve liberation in this life, and we were actually talking about whether the psychic reader was reliable because... Gee, they told a lot of people they would receive liberation in this life. I said to Swamiji, liberation in this life looks like you. It does not look like me. And he just sort of essentially said, yeah. (laughs) He didn't actually say yeah, but I mean, it was sort of like, it just sat there. It just was faded. I said, I know what it looks like. It looks like you. And you know, we don't look like him. We look pretty good for us. You know, we're doing real well for us. But moksha, complete freedom, is just not us. Not yet. So therefore, don't be shocked. You know, it's, it's a very, I mean, we're doing so well. We're just doing great. But we're just not free. And so therefore, this is going to keep bubbling up. And the more comfortable you are with the inevitableness of that, Actually, the much less difficult it is when it happens. Because it's the outrage. It's, it's ego. It's saying, what? Another problem? What? You know, it's just like so shocking. No, no, it's not even slightly shocking. What did you expect? You know, when you look like Swami and you look like Master, you'll know. I just figure when I need to know, I'll know. <laughs> and until then, here we go. Just keep working at it, because what else are you going to do? It's a matter of life or death. And uh, if you stop putting out effort, if you allow yourself to become discouraged, well, you get nowhere anyway. You just, you have all the same problems, except you're not even working on them. Swami's response to me when I was so horrified to have something I really thought I was done with, really thought I was done with, just come back like a wet fish whacking on the side. I've never even seen a wet fish, but you know, there's kind of a slimy, horrible quality to that. <laughs> you know, I'm, this is completely off the subject, so I'll come back. And I'll finish the thought, but like, he said, well, he said, you thought you were free and you weren't putting out any energy on that, and now you know. And I was, you know, I was so depressed and upset. Why be upset? He said, you know, you had more to learn and you just weren't putting out any energy. Now you know. Just like that. That was how he dealt with it. Now you know. I said, yeah, that's true. I was still a little bit over the top with my emotions, but the fact of the matter was I was living in delusion and now the delusion had been busted, so what's wrong with that? You know, just from a very uninvolved point of view, what's wrong with that? This is good news, so why are you upset? The only reason you're upset is because we're not free of ego and that in itself is is the issue. Just uh, be cheerfully who we are. I watched someone once with Swamiji 
It's very, very instructive. This woman, she's not with us anymore, but she taught me, and I'm forever grateful. Something had happened, and Swami sort of asked some question, and she said, oh, I could never do that. I'm just not that advanced. But it wasn't putting herself down. It was just like, I'm not embarrassed about it. It's just how I feel. It's just the facts. And it was the facts. It was somehow, I don't even remember what the deal was. But she was just so comfortable and even comfortable in front of Swami and just admitting that, no, no, I'm much too attached to whatever it was that I'm attached to. I couldn't give that up now. No defensiveness, nothing unattractive. And it was just so like, well, of course. And a huge, a huge part of me saw how much more freedom there was in that than my constant effort not to admit it. You know, and my constant effort not to admit it never changed the facts. It just created a lot of chaos around me. And this girl just cheerfully admitted it. And I started cheerfully admitting things after that, trying to find the right balance point, but basically not trying to not admit it. So that's, it's just, it's not giving up. It's the, that's the subtle thing. It's not giving up. It's just being realistic about what we're dealing with. Otherwise, we're just always going to be blindsided. What I was going to say a minute ago, which is totally unrelated. I was talking to John Parsons about a lawyer's job, you know, that you get hired to present a case. And sometimes the cases you get hired to present really have no merit. I mean, it may not be that you're being dishonest, but it's just you're not going to win. And he said, but if the client wants you to try to chop down a tree with a dead halibut, you'll just pick it up by the tail and <laughs> just flail away for a while. <laughs> it was always the picture I have. <laughs> if they want you to try, you'll try. He said, you never know. Adding just about the way the law and the judges are, you never know. Did you have a question, Anna? No. Okay. Anyone else? Thoughts or comments here? Okay. Well, we'll start just briefly into the second one, but we're not going to get very far. (laughs) Isn't that fun? No ego. Okay? That's number one. It's also interesting. Well, of course, it's the essence of the spiritual path. That's where he starts. Number two. Another trait that always amazed me in him was the deep, impersonal respect he gave everyone. His unwillingness to let Debbie criticize a man for being in a state of feeling no pain. Um, That was when uh, the man was drunk and was being over-familiar with Master. And Debbie Mukherjee, who spoke Bengali, said something to, to Master, kind of deprecatingly about this drunk man, knowing that the man who was drunk didn't speak Bengali and would have no idea what was being said. But even still, Master reprimanded Debbie and said, don't, don't speak like that. Even though the man was being inebriated and inappropriate and and all Debbie had said was just some little joking remark, but it was a deprecating remark about the man and Master chastised him, don't do it. Deep, impersonal respect. His unwillingness to let Debbie criticize a man for being in a state of feeling no pain his perfect willingness to have people with whom he didn't agree have the last word. These are examples merely of a characteristic that is marvelous to contemplate in one as great in the eyes of the world as Yogananda was. Now, of course, that deep, I love the phrase, it's the deep, impersonal respect he gave everyone. 
it's really amazing to contemplate, and this is a factor of both the rational mind and the ego, it's amazing to contemplate how much time we spend parsing things apart and making comparisons in our mind, isn't it? And how much of the time we don't just simply take things as they are. Swamiji, when he went to Assisi to visit Assisi on one of his early visits, he meditated in the Portuncula. The Portuncula is the little chapel, one of the little chapels that St. Francis rebuilt in the early days of his ministry from a crumbling ruin to a little... And now it's a very small chapel, just probably a little bigger than this central area up here, that sits inside a huge cathedral. (laughs) They just built this gigantic cathedral around it. So you come into this huge cathedral and you walk through a half, you know, half a football field full of cathedral to find this little chapel sitting there. Actually, it's a little bigger than in here, but still. And, uh, and, but it's a place where Francis lived and it's very, very holy with Francis's vibrations. And, and inside it's kind, it's rustic. It's more or less preserved as it was. And you can sit in there and meditate. And Swamiji wrote in a book about visiting there and just feeling um, such extraordinary sweetness from St. Francis. And he prayed. He said, how is it possible to be so sweet? And among the answers he got was by never judging, by never judging anyone, by loving all, but above all, by never judging. Now, Implied in judgment almost always is a certain lack of respect. You know, well, he really ought to be better than that. How can he behaving, be behaving like that? Why should he be like that? I mean, this is what Debbie Mukherjee was saying to Master. Oh, this man, look at him, he's just drunk, you know. And you're saying something deprecating because why is he drunk? He shouldn't be drunk. He's not behaving appropriately to you. And Certainly drunkenness is not an admirable quality. Think of the karma of the moment, though, that the man was drunk and ran into Yogananda. And then because he was so uninhibited, because of his drinking, he came over to him. You know, some part of his subconscious mind was attracted, and so he, uh, you know, uh, behaved in a way that he very likely would not have behaved if he was sober. So there was an awful lot of complicated karma that was playing itself out all in the moment. And Debbie Mukherjee just wants to say something a little dismissive of this person. Just think how often, I mean, countless times in our lives, with strangers, with friends, with business associates, with relatives, with family, you know, somebody does something and just rises out of it some little bit of a deprecating thought about them. Well, that's not a very smart decision. That was a rude way to put it. You know, why does she wear that color? It doesn't really look good on her. Whatever the words might be, just a piece of us takes apart whatever they are and then has some thought that's less than uplifting, uplifting to them. It doesn't mean that you always say nice things, but you're, but you're, um, well, I I was skipping ahead. Um, Master often reprimanded people and spoke strongly when it was necessary. So it's not about being nice deep impersonal respect doesn't mean that you don't know what's going on exactly or that you don't respond to it with perfect appropriateness. Respect is a wholly different quality. I know when Swamiji once, well, years ago when he used to give wedding ceremonies, which he hasn't done for many years, but I remember there was this wedding and um, he spoke 
And he said, people talk so much about love in marriage, he said, but really what holds a marriage together is respect. He said, love is a feeling that comes and goes. Uh, but uh, he said, we don't even always love God all the time. And if we can't love God all the time, think how much harder it is to always have a loving feeling toward some other human being who's going to get on your nerves from time to time, for sure. But if you have respect for someone, you can always have friendship. And, and I remember once also... Um, this woman was having a really serious difficulty in her marriage, and Swami was urging her to be forgiving and to, you know, to mend the relationship and go forward. But then the woman said to Swamiji, I don't think he respects me anymore. What was so interesting was, oh, he said, Swamiji said, oh, that's very serious. Suddenly he took it very seriously. It's like all of a sudden he felt the basis of the marriage was really threatened. Whereas we just mere transgressions and wrong behavior and so on didn't that wasn't a, that wasn't going to take the marriage down that was just an error but oh if there's no respect anymore then maybe there's no relationship anymore and if you if you think about it just how you you feel yourself about how how different it is when you feel that somebody really respects you they don't even have to like you and they don't have to like um, what you're doing they don't have to agree with you. But there's that underlying sense of uh, dignity, that they, they give you a certain dignity, a certain importance in the world, a certain um, divine right to, to follow your path and to be yourself. And when a master gives that to you, of course, it's... It, and this is where you come back to... Um, the fact that the master has been in the state of consciousness that we have been in. And so when he looks at it, it doesn't look to him like a hopeless, impossible position. You know, we look at it from the bottom up, so to speak, but he looks at it from the end point and he realizes, oh yeah, that's a valley you have to walk through. And if you just walk through that valley, you'll find that you'll get over here. And when you see a traveler behind you walking the same path that you're walking, you don't feel that there's something wrong with them fundamentally because they're behind you. You just realize that they're just walking the path that everybody has to walk and it's the only way to get over there. And when the masters look back at us, they don't have any... They're not afraid. See, a lot of times with us, the reason we can't respect people is because it frightens us. We're afraid they're going to pull us down. We're afraid... Um, that when we see those qualities manifested outside ourselves, then they remind us of what we ourselves are like. And when we want to, Swamiji says, whatever you judge in others is something you haven't yet overcome in yourself. The understanding I have of that is you're trying to expunge it in yourself, and when you see it outside yourself, you have this desperate need to get rid of it. You, know, you think that if you can stamp it out all around you, that it will also stamp it out inside of you, because whatever it is frightens you. But when you practice respecting people, and even more deeply when you actually can, as Master does, you give this deep, impersonal respect. You're not respecting them because they're nice or because they're talented. or You're just respecting them because they're on their way. And you don't respect them for any other reason, really, but that's a pretty big reason. So remember how Swamiji has, and he's told us many times about that dream he had in which he saw so many you know, thousands of people of all different kinds, and then he realized that every one of them 
were seeking bliss, no matter what they were doing, they had one unified intention. And he said, and the way he, answered, he, he ended that was, how could you not love them when you realized what was really in their hearts? It's very interesting in thinking about respect in that way. How can you not respect people who are just seeking bliss in the best way they can? But you respect them for that quality, not necessarily for anything that they do or don't do. Because sometimes you have to respond appropriately. But that doesn't mean that you throw them away personally or you cease to see them in that light. Well, we're sort of introducing that one. We'll go to it more next week. Okay, so this week, think about what it would be like to not have an ego. And every time you do not behave as Master did, I never saw him affected to even the slightest degree by anything that anyone ever said about him. If you fail to live up to that at any point during this week, (laughs) contemplate what it would be like to have that kind of freedom. Okay, And look into Master's eyes and ask him to explain to you what it's like to have no ego. Okay, that'll be it for this.